Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, support, and inspire. Welcome to episode two of Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and today I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Cassandra Lamb, co-founder and CEO of The Cosmos, an organization that started out as a way for Asian American women to gather and to share stories, to empower their voices, and now has evolved into a health and wellness company. Through the conversation, you're going to hear an amazing, improbable love story that brought Cassandra's mom and dad together. And you'll learn about her career story from thinking about med school, law school, and with a brief overstay in consulting on her way to starting an organization that has done so much for a lot of people in our community, particularly Asian American women. So I want to thank you for spending time with us and joining us here on the show. And on this episode, the audio is not the best. We are working constantly to improve the audio quality and the listener experience on this podcast. And I appreciate your patience and understanding as we get better ourselves in providing a platform and a podcast that we can all be proud of. And stick around till the end to hear what Cassandra has in her love letter to us. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Cassandra Lamb. Cassandra, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, it is an honor to have you here, um, one of our very, very first guests on Dear Asian Americans. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. I'm so excited to get into it with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. In, in current state, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your uh, Asian American history here in a little bit. Yeah, my LinkedIn bio. <laughs> um, my name is Cassandra Lamb. I am a first generation, and I define first generation as first being born here in America. I know for academics would say that second gen, but I'm first generation born in America, Vietnamese American. I'm currently a wellness entrepreneur, a yoga teacher. Um, I've always considered myself also an activist or an, an advocate of um, your mental health. And uh, I'm currently based here in Brooklyn, New York. So I am originally from Southern California, specifically Covina, California. Um, so San Diego Valley, just got to shout that out. Yeah, I've left a very traditional life of working in consulting and um, catapulted my way into entrepreneurship very unexpectedly. And I'm excited to hear how you're, we're going to get to that story through your questions. So let's go back to Covina and the 626. Obviously, it's a very... Mm -hmm. um, homely place for a lot of our fellow Asian Americans and possibly a lot of people listening currently from the 626. Share with me a little bit about how the Lamb family ended up there, what were the circumstances, and, and how growing up in that community shaped your initial identity of being a both. My parents are Vietnamese folk refugees. So my mom and dad were both born in Vietnam, and after the war, um, they and millions of other people had a mass exodus from the country. So for those who are probably too young to even really see imagery of the Vietnam War, I always like to bring the image of, you know, that kind of photo of the Syrian refugee crisis, the boats all, all in the ocean, I think it was the Mediterranean Sea. Um, something very similar happened um, after the Vietnam War. There was Vietnam, a lot of times people were going with whoever could possibly grant them safe passage. And a lot of times that didn't happen, but sometimes it did. And so both of my parents are really lucky. They they also come from huge families. So I think it's also a really important thing. So my mom and my mom's side of the family, she's one of ten. My dad is one of seven. And um when they escaped the country illegally obviously 
Um, they both ended up uh, meeting at, actually at a Malaysian refugee camp. And even the journey of getting to the refugee camp was extremely harrowing, very high rate, like rate of, um, high, very high risk, essentially. Like you, you didn't know if you were going to get there. People were obviously were trying to avoid pirates. You know, my mom's boat actually was attacked by pirates and she told me the story growing up, which sounded like folklore when you're like eight. And then as I got older and I started to recount it to myself, I realized how traumatic it was, but essentially, on their journey to um, the refugee camp, they were attacked by pirates, and you know the only form of money that they could carry was gold. And so she and her siblings ended up eating it so that it wouldn't be stolen, and then having to, you know, it would come out the other way, and hope that you could hold on to it until you got to land, and hopefully that gold translated into money that you could utilize later on. You know, people ran out of food and water. People had to drink their urine. It was a lot of people. People died. Um, she was also traveling with um, her older sister had young children. So young children were going through this heroin journey. And so by the time they got to the Malaysian refugee camp, they were there for one or two years. Um, that's actually where my parents first met. Um, my dad, as the story goes, my dad says that like she was a cute girl that was like at this at this camp, and you know like they were both teenagers at this point. Walk by the, the area where her family was like living, and you know try to get to know them. Eventually, they both got sponsored by families uh, in America and were able to come over. So my dad actually ended up, his family ended up in Chicago at first, and my mom in Minnesota. Uh, obviously, two climates that are way too cold for Asian folks who come from like Southeast Asia. So eventually, both of their families individually um, made their way over to California. They actually didn't reunite until, and this is also a crazy story because obviously this is before Facebook, before smartphones, before, you know, everybody had like a, a everyone had a computer at home, but my mom's family ended up relocating to like the Glendale area, my dad's family to Highland Park. And one day my dad was at a grocery store in Chinatown waiting for his mom to finish running errands. And he sees my mom's nephew run through the front door of this grocery store. And he recognized the nephew. This was the same nephew that, um, that was a child when he was on the ship. And he basically stopped him. And he's like, what are you doing here? You know, like, this is crazy. And the nephew says, oh, you didn't know? We, we relocated. And we're here in, like, California, too. We're in Glendale. So the story goes, he ended up asking uh, the nephew for my mom's, like, phone number, like, the landline number to the apartment that she was sharing with all of her siblings. Um, and the story goes that he started to holler and like made, like what made his phone call came over and that's how they started dating. Um, and you know, as my mom says, like she's tipping through the playboy. She was like, I'm sure I was just one of many people that he was seeing. But, uh, that's how my parents got to America and came here. Um, so they came to America when they were, um, they, they were in high school still. So the benefit was they were able to still learn English through ESL programs. Because they were they had so many siblings and they were not the oldest, neither of them actually had the privilege of going to college. So pretty much right away after graduating high school, they had to start working. Um, my mom ended up becoming, um, getting certified to become a nail tech, <clears throat> as did a lot of Vietnamese women at the time. My dad ended up deciding to take a job in the post office because he heard government benefits were great, which is true. Um, so that's that's kind of like the story of how my parents met and how they made they were they were their way here to America and. Um, they ended up uh, getting married, and I was the first kid out of two. And so we actually ended up in Covina right before my sister was born. So when my parents got married, they were, you know, obviously a poor, low-income uh, family, not college-educated. So they had a one-bedroom in Highland Park, and 
because they were so savvy and um, worked really hard, they were able to save up enough money and ended up um, buying a house out in Covina just in time for my, right before my sister was born, which was when they realized we needed a new place. So that's how we ended up in, in Covina. It was very different from how it is. So I, I mean, you're, when, when I hear your family's, your, your parents, you know, journey here, I think it's so many things had to have gone right um, for them, for, for you to be here. Um, mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of our parents don't really share a lot of their tough part of their lives or lives before America. So how old are you when you learned out about how they met? I know, obviously, you gave us the very shorter version of it. And, and it's the pleasant one that we can you know, talk about today. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you first learn about your parents' journey here? And was it something that you sought out? Mm -hmm. So growing, growing up uh, I, as a kid, I think I asked my parents, about their stories just because I had that childlike curiosity and I wanted to know. And so I think that they shared what felt like what would be most interesting while still answering my questions growing up. But something that I continue to kind of grapple with is there are so many huge, I think, gaps in both my family tree and my family history that to this day, I don't know. And so I have, I feel like I have a patchwork of stories as to how my parents, you know, grew up and how they got to the refugee camp, how they came to America and how they came to meet, how they came to become parents. But um, even within each of those milestones, there's so much, I think, intricacy and so much that is like glossed over. And something I, have, I continue to struggle with today is like, how do I coax more of it out of them? How do I encourage them to feel safe to share? And how do I do it in a way that feels uh, like non-invasive. And I don't know if there is a way for it to feel non-invasive because culturally, at least the way that I, they grew up, I, I don't see the same level of like inquiry as to how their parents might have lived or even their siblings. And I wonder if it's just different, right? So like when I think about, this is my own projection, but when I think about my mom's family, she has nine brothers and sisters. It's not like she talks and texts with them all the time. Sometimes she goes years without seeing some of them because they all live all over the world. Some of them are in Australia different parts of the U.S. Some of them are back in Vietnam. And so I just always find that so interesting because it would be so strange if I didn't see my sister for like just a couple months, right? I mean, well, now it's a couple months because we live cross country, but I can't imagine going two years without seeing her. But, you know, my mom goes two years without seeing her sister in Australia and they also don't talk frequently. Something I'm trying to grapple with a lot is like, my American upbringing and my own beliefs about what my parents owe me but in terms of family history, in terms of context, in terms of like why they did what they did and how they got here. I think I struggle with like whether or not like I should push too hard or how to, because that is just from, from their own perspective. It almost feels irrelevant. And sometimes they, what they share with me is like, you know, why are you so nosy? Or why are you asking all these questions? They're like, I'm tired right now. I don't really want to talk about it. And it's hard because I, I feel like what, I'm most interested in just as a human being and anyone else is like the the dark stuff, the shadow stuff, like the things that didn't go right, because I feel like that offers so much context to understand someone. And, you know, growing up and, and, and becoming older and being an adult now myself, I want to understand my, pe my parents as people. And I realize that's something that I don't have. And I kind of only know them as mom and dad. I, I don't know if that gap will ever end. I actually talked about this with a friend recently about just like when I look at my family tree, what I envy about some folks who are not maybe first or second gen or some folks who had a long history of growing roots here in one place is 
when there's displacement of uh, a diaspora, as there is of so many Asians uh, all over the world, that family tree gets ripped apart because you no longer have photographs. You don't have, you might, you might have uh, family members who don't want to talk about things. Also, people's memory is valuable. Like, that's the other thing. Like, if my parents might say something and it might be completely wrong and I don't know, right? There's no fact checking. And I actually don't know anything about my family tree beyond my grandparents because there's just so many kids. <laughs> How do you keep track beyond your own nine brothers and sisters? And that's my long-winded way of saying there's so much that I don't know. But what I do know is that their journey was so hard. And I completely agree with you. Like, there's so much that had to go right for them to be here today. And I do feel incredibly lucky that they decided, their family decided to make that journey. Because my family is refugee descendant, I have like a unique sensitivity to the way that we, we as a country in America tend to attach ourselves to the immigrant story. And I just always kind of raise my hand and say, that's not everyone's story because not everyone chose to be here. You know, if it weren't for the war, my parents, specifically my dad, who I think has a lot more and Vietnam is really like the country he wants to die in and come back to. And my mom is quite the opposite, where America became a place where she could, where she became who she is now. And, and, you know, quite frankly, she's very, she's loving the convenience of living in America, you know, and for all the things that you might say about our government, like you don't have to worry about running water and paved roads and, um, it's a very cushy life. I think it's, it's hard because I think there's a lot of stories that we're not even telling of folks who didn't have any other choice but to come here because they're fleeing from war, from famine, from poverty, from marginalization, what what have you. And that's where I think, you know, America is very unique, uniquely an experiment in different types of people, some of whom don't want to be here and some of whom who really, really do. Well, I think the immigrant story or the storyline fits the narrative for Americans as well, right? It, it sits well because... Of course, you wanted to come here because this is where the opportunity mm -hmm. was. And whether it's whatever part of the world you left to come here, I think the average American or just the American mindset, it makes them comfortable to accept the fact that we, quote unquote, were better. And you came here because mm -hmm. you did not have the same opportunities wherever you may have been from. So I, I do agree. I mean, there are a lot of things in American history that, though factual and though actual history, that there's a hesitancy or a denial of certain things that have happened. I'm glad that I myself am learning about this history as well, because it's obviously not taught in schools. And the second part, I think, is something that you touched upon, Cassandra, which is parents don't necessarily want to share all the dark parts of what is family history, because at least it still existed today, the desire of our parents to assimilate, which is an interesting word. If Asian American was a 50-50 hypothetical balance, you know, there was a push to, you know, lessen the Asian side of you and go be more American, pursue the right degrees in the education and have the right logos and go work for a big American company and, you know, do all the things that I think we were led to believe as, as measures of success, rightfully or wrongfully, and from a number of different variety of sources. So yeah, I, I do agree that I think it's fascinating to dig into family history and how do we end up here? Because the common answer is, why does it matter? You have such a bright life ahead. And at least for me, I think it took a long time for me to realize and accept that if I don't know where I'm from, or if I don't care to know where I'm from, it, I don't know where I should be going. Take me through sort of your adolescence and 
did you have a positive association with being Asian American? Was it Asian American for you or was it just I am Vietnamese and your friends groups and things like that? Mm -hmm. So Covina is actually like at the edge of what you would consider like San Diego. Well, it's in the San Diego Valley, but it's the edge of the 66. So, you know, El Monte, Baldwin Park, like as you get, as you go more east, it's actually not Asian, uh, Asian dominant. I think I forget the last time I looked up the demographics, but it's like I think Hispanic and white. And then I would say, at least from my experience, Chinese and Filipino was like what I grew up with also. So unlike, you know, parts of like Rosemead, Alhambra, San Marino, Arcadia, where you can go miles only seeing signs in like Chinese or Vietnamese, uh, I grew up in Camino, which was pretty sleepy, um, pretty sleepy town growing up. But, uh, most of my closest friends growing up were actually Hispanic, Mexican to be specific. And so I think one of, the, one of my favorite things about Southern California culture that only like Los Angelinos really understand is the ways in which Mexican and Asian culture just mesh, like commingle together. And I think an example of this is like, I think like Roy Choi and the Kogi truck, right? I mean, that's like Korean and Mexican like food together. And it's like really beautiful. And so, like when I go to like, taco trucks in like parts of LA where tourists wouldn't go like I always see a big ass crowd of Hispanic and Mexican and Asian people and it's like so cool and it's just so normal um and so yeah actually growing up like I didn't have um I wouldn't say I had like an overabundance of Asian friends it was pretty diverse um but I did grow up feeling very distinctly like a part of myself was split off at a pretty early age so and this is something I've been thinking a lot about is like the way in which like we start tracking kids on like a, I think they could just call it the gate program, but it's like either when you're, they tap you for being, I don't know, smart or like having potential and then the kids that don't, right? And so, uh, I think this tracking starts to happen pretty early. It started happening for me around third grade. And so at that point, when you're like identified as having, you know, high potential, whatever that even means, they start to separate you but then I all of like my closest friends for example um were not necessarily the people that I had always had class with and I think this tracking this this duality of identities really became apparent for me in middle school where they start having you in honors classes and but I would always notice like even back then I would talk about it as like oh I have my like my friends were in my classes and I have my friends who like I've known since second grade and who don't really know me as a human being. And then I got, it became even more pronounced in high school where it's like, okay, now we have AP and, and, but at the same time, my same friends that I grew up with would be, you know, who I want to socialize with on the weekend. But then I obviously made friends with people that I was in class with as well because we would have projects together and, you know, shared misery of studying for the SAT. And so I feel like growing up, there was always this distinct bifurcation of my identity of like the, the person that was really, I think, almost only treated as valuable because of my grades or my potential academic ability, um, which is, I think, not an indication of any one person, but like a larger system that, uh, that I'm kind of condemning here. And then there's like the part of me that's like a human that really just like loves my friends. I actually carried that bifurcation of identity all the way through college and I don't think they actually emerged until after college when I had my first opportunity to be like why do I feel like I'm leading two lives like why can't they be all one and it's just it's something that only now do I have that perspective to really be like oh it was 
of living essentially two different lives. So even at lunch, for example, in high school, I'd leave my AP class friends and then hang out with my with my other friends. And even and we wouldn't talk about anything related to class. We didn't have classes together. And then I would come jump right back into class and have you know friendships that were kind of just really based on like being in the same space and nothing against them, but like they weren't people that I necessarily wanted to spend time with on the weekend. And so that like, yeah, growing up had a very diverse, very like gracefully diverse um, experiences. But like I said, most of my cool friends were Hispanic. And so I think that influenced a lot of my, my like my, how I approach life now. I tend to be very comfortable in multiple settings because I've always had to kind of be a chameleon of sorts, you know, and, and again, going back to that bifurcation of identity, that's something that really shaped me in my formative years. It's almost like just knowing that, like, the way that I, the things that I talk about, the parts of myself that I show, like, even how I speak about things, like, it shifted based on the environment because different environments required or wanted different things. That's fascinating. I, I, I think the, the bifurcation and being both is something that all of us have to deal with, right? And I think a lot of us generally see it as, who am I inside the four walls of my home? Uh, basically, who are you at home and who are you outside of home? How you speak and what language you speak and how you interact. I think mm-hmm. that's the bifurcation that we generally think about. But I, I think it's fascinating to hear your um, your academic trajectory, which, again, is just the one part of what made you you in high school, even through college, which to me is extremely fascinating because you went to a school that loosely is half Asian. And there are so many clubs and organizations and in Westwood, there's, there's so many opportunities to participate in Asian and Asian American things, food, culture, activities. What, what do you mean by that? That it, you didn't really see that mm-hmm. through college as well. And yeah. shed, shed a little bit light on your, your academic choices and how you know doing all these gifted and, and AP things led you to study what you did in college. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I forgot to even layer in the Asian and American part to it. I think when you layer that into the academic uh, division that I was experiencing, you could essentially say it was like my life was quartered, right? Because I did experience that Asian and American tension. So growing up in America, I don't think, you know, as a ch- certainly as like a child and a teenager, I don't think I personally necessarily spent a lot of time trying to figure out like what is what are these two identities like how do they live within me I think most of the time I confronted it in the form of like conflict with like parents in terms of like values alignment and like what I wanted to do so I honestly I think up until I wouldn't say Asian American was part of my like everyday vernacular you know even in, in high school I could just consider myself like a normal American kid I had Asian friends I had Hispanic friends and that was just like my, that was most of my friends group, honestly, that was my life. And so just consider myself um, American, but also a lot of why I really thrived, I think, in this application of identity was because I had, I mean, I, was, I didn't know it at the time, but I was dealing with a lot of internalized racism that just came from growing up in a world where we did not have the privilege of seeing anyone who looked like us anywhere. You know, like the, the two Asian people I might have seen growing up was Telquan ice skater and then the yellow power ranger and i think those are like the two <laughs> dominant ones that in in my childhood at least so grew up never really seeing asian people doing anything cool or very public facing or in position of leadership so for me this holding on to my american identity was like more important and furthermore i think why i like allowed that bifurcation of my identity to persist 
is because, you know, I did feel like my friends outside of my AP classes were my cool friends. They were the friends that I went to parties with, that I like snuck out of the house with, uh, to like go out when my parents were like, no, you should be studying. And that made me feel really seen in a way that like when you're, you know, a high school student, you just want to, you just want to have fun and you want to be accepted. But at the same time, I really also loved my, my friends that I had classes with because we had really shared, you know, experiences of like trying to figure out where do we want to go to college? And it was without a question that all of us had to, <laughs> you know, like in some ways. And then we got to also share, you know, the, the joys and misery of studying for the SHEET, like, you know, doing AP testing. And that was also really important for me to have like that support system. Um, but I just remember, you know, looking back now, I never quite felt like I could be cool or accepted or really like catapulted to like the level of success that I hope to find in my life but as an Asian American just because I hadn't seen it at that point and so I wanted to share that context because going into college I, I did not go to UCLA because of like the large Asian population um, UCLA was actually I wasn't that happy to go to that school to be honest I think in high school I worked really hard I, I am I almost I completely threw myself into academics because it was a way for me to basically get a plane ticket outside of Kubina. Like I knew I wanted to go as far away as possible. I also experienced a lot of tension with my dad in high school. And a lot of this was precipitated by what felt like a larger and larger cultural chasm between us that, you know, my adolescent self had no desire to bridge. It was more like I'd rather just burn this bridge. In many ways, I think I fought my dad back then because he resembled everything that I felt like I did not like about Asian culture. Um, for context, he grew up in a very patriarchal household. Um, his own father was very abusive and emotionally manipulative. And so I know now as an adult, a lot of it wasn't his fault, but like the way that he tried to raise me was through control. And, you know, he expected docility. He expected filial piety. He expected no talking back. But I was the oldest daughter growing up in America. And from a very young age, I always had this like strange need to fight for justice, whether it was for me, for other people. And I had always have a very firm moral compass. And my moral compass was very different than his. And I was always very fiery as a kid, too. And so we really started butting heads in middle school, which is I joke that middle school is where like you start to have a personality and your own needs and like your own interests. Right. Like you're not like quite so um, malleable as you were in like elementary school. And that's kind of where I started to like, you know, really question and push back and formulate my own opinions about things. So, you know, it really came to a head in high school because even simple things like, hey, can I go to the movies with my friends? Like my dad, you know, growing up, that wasn't something he got to do. And so he was like, no, you should be studying. Like, no boys until you're like married and all these things. And it just, I think what really squeezed me at the time was I was, so I played three sports in high school. I was in soccer, tennis, and track. Um, but tennis was really my main sport. I was pretty trash at soccer, but I just found it fun because I loved uh, distance running and it was like distance running with the ball. But um, tennis was my thing. So I played three sports. I was highly involved in like ASB, which is like student government, clubs on campus, uh, volunteered extensively, and was taking like the, like all the AP classes possible. So I felt like, you know, so wrong because it's like I'm doing everything that I should be doing and I'm doing well. And yet I still can't, you know, you know, I still can't hang out with my friends. I still can't, you know, do these things that normal everyday American kids want to do. 
So that created a huge vision between us. And there was even a point in high school where we didn't talk for a month, even though we lived under the same house. Very dramatic. Um, and so, you know, like when I started applying to colleges, my dream was to go to the East Coast. I was actually became obsessed with Columbia University because I got a brochure and the photos of Morningside Heights look so beautiful. I obviously had also seen Gotham Girl and every other movie that has ever fantasized about New York. And so uh, I really had my heart out set on Columbia and I was like, okay, I guess Harvard and Stanford as well. Anyway, so I worked really hard in school, ended up being salutatorian, but even when admissions came around back in 2009, I didn't get into Columbia. I got waitlisted at Harvard. But I did get into like Berkeley and, and LA and so never got to move off of the wait list, unfortunately. And so it just, you know, came time for me to really, I think that was probably one of the most soul crushing moments of my youth because that, you know, that college acceptance was like so much more to me than just college. It was like my ticket to freedom, essentially to the opportunity to just be who I wanted to be outside of like living in my parents' dominion. My hunger to prove myself, I had a huge chip on my shoulder. I, ha- I would have it for years, even into college. Anyway, so I ended up choosing UCLA because it's actually a funny story. I visited Berkeley for like, you know, some admit weekend and I was staying with a friend. I was, I was just walking around campus waiting for her to get out of class. A uh, homeless man starts running after me and screaming at me. And I'm like 17 and never left the suburbs. So I don't even have a driver's license. So I'm like freaked out, running through like, you know, their main walk. And I ended up going into the student store and hiding. And, you know, that's how I lose him. <laughs> At that point, I'm like, I cannot go to this school. <laughs> because, like, I just, it was just so, I was so out of, like, my comfort zone. Like, I can't believe I just had to run away from a homeless man who probably was mentally ill. Like, that obviously did not realize that at the time. I was just so freaked out. And uh, also, there's this park that a lot of um, of my friends, people at Berkeley would say, like, it's just where the homeless people sleep. And that's just a thing. And I was like, um, I come from Covina. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Like, I had never even really spent that much time in LA proper because my parents don't really care for the traffic and, or like leaving past downtown LA. And so, you know, totally had like a freak out moment and I was like, oh, I'm going to UCLA. The campus looks like it's way, way nicer. So, you know, I feel like I ended up at UCLA, uh, kind of like a, I was pretty ungrateful. I was just like, this is the best I can do. Fine. At least I can still dorm. Um, you know, part of me wishes that, like, I could review college with, you know, the perspective I have now. I'm sure we all do, to some extent. Every but, single uh, one of us, yeah. <laughs> the things that we would do differently, right? That's, I mean, it, it sucks for Berkeley. I mean, they, they were probably wondering, why, why isn't she coming here? I thought she liked this. <laughs> with this whole bookstore story, it never happened. Um, that's amazing. So I, and I guess out sidebar, you did make your way to New York eventually. Um, so. Uh, New York is such a fascinating place. Um, I, I went to high school out there just for three years between like 15 and 17. So I've always still have this um, fascination and desire to do the the city thing. And um, so I, it, it's always so fun for me to go back. Um, so I first, I just want to appreciate you for, for sharing this story. I know it's uh, probably a conversation you don't have often in terms of, um, and then we haven't even hit you know, adulthood yet. And I think there's just so much uh, amazing and, and, and beauty in sort of how you develop your own identity. Um, so take, I, I guess I'm also very curious. It seemed like you were on an extremely hyper-focused academic track. 
um, going to UCLA and sort of having your mixed emotions about that. Um, and then what sort of influence did you have in terms of picking what to study? Because mm -hmm. you, you're not obviously doing today what you went to college for, um, as, as most of us, many of us mm -hmm. listening. Um, so if you're listening out there, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't, whatever, if you're a college student right now listening, you don't have to do that for the rest of your life. Trust us. Um, yeah. But what, what did you want to be in college? What was your dream? Before I get into that, I want to caveat that, like, the reason why I, I poured so much of myself into academics, and I certainly think academics, I mean, if you're good at cramming and writing and test taking, it's certainly something you can hack. I, don't, I certainly don't think the way that we in academics um, qualify who's intelligent or capable is right. <laughs> I think a lot of my experience has been actually in kind of like thinking about what real intelligence is defined as, like outside of the education system. But the reason why I poured myself so much into school and, you know, that just like the pure brute force alone had its own ROI was, you know, at least 50% of it was fueled by the fact that like I wanted to get as far from my dad as possible because I felt like so suffocated um, at home and, you know, coupled that with like my teen angst and all the things. Um, so I, and I want to share that because it wasn't until my 20s that I started to decouple my identity and self-worth from what I could accomplish or do. And I think this is important to mention, especially because I, I have heard that this is something that a lot of us as Asian Americans continue to struggle with. And so I, going into college, like even getting to college was like more of like a screw you to like my dad than maybe necessarily like, I'm really excited to be here. It was like, it was like a hot, I did this without you. Um, and that's the other thing. Like I funded my own way to school. Uh, I did this without you. Like I'm gonna keep doing things without you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make something of myself. But it was like, as opposed to doing it for me, it was so much of it in the beginning was like anti my dad. Um, and so I got to college, and when I got it's funny, when I applied to college, um, I deluded myself into thinking that I wanted to be a doctor or a pediatrician or a pharmacist because that's what my parents said might be interesting, but. So I, I mean, at the U, in the UC system, you have something called zero week, and during zero week is when you're just partying and stuff. So obviously, I get to college, and I'm like, no more parents around to tell me what to do. So I'm gonna have a lot of fun. So I ended up partying a lot zero week, and um, yeah, at the time I was accepted into UCLA into a really hard major, MIMG, which is molecular immunology something genetics. I don't know. So the idea was, oh, I'm gonna do MIMG, and um, you know, eventually get to med school. Maybe <laughs> within like. The first two weeks, because I had Chem 14 on my schedule, I remember hearing on campus what other people's experience with Chem 14 was, and then thinking to myself, like, I didn't even like chemistry in high school. Like, what? Why, why did I think I could do this? So I ended up dropping Chem 14 within the first two weeks and took a, another class, environmental science class. And, you know, very, pretty much like within my first of two quarters, I realized, like, I didn't know I want to be a doctor. So, what do I actually want to study? And I think the running joke at the time was like, you know, you're going to change your major three times in college. And I think at the beginning of college, I was like, no way. I know what I want to be. I literally changed my major three times. So I, um, once I realized that like, okay, not going to be a doctor. Don't, don't really care for it. Um, what do I actually want my college experience to be like and be about? And so I've always really loved reading and writing, like growing up. 
my routine with my dad was every Friday he picked us up from me and my sister, younger sister from school. We would go to the Covina Public Library and we had these big tote bags and my sister and I would each return a full tote bag of books and pick up a whole other full tote bag. And we would, I would devour those books in a week and come back. And then whenever the library did like these summer reading challenges, I would always like hit it out of the park. So reading and writing has always been my first love. And so I was like, okay, like maybe I will major in English. So I actually majored in English for a year. I think the hardest thing about English was just the sheer amount, like the, the workload was so intense. Like the number of books that we were expected to write, how much we were expected to uh, read. And on top of that, I was also... Uh, in my first year at UCLA, I ended up, you know, ironically for someone who didn't care much for, for figuring out what Asian American really meant to her, ended up pledging an Asian American sorority. And so um, with all of that was happening, I was like, okay, I can't stay with the English major. And on top of that, I didn't have the, the language articulated at the time, but I just quite frankly was not really interested in all of the old dead white people we were reading. And I'm very proud to say that now because uh, there is a dialogue happening now about like who gets to be in the American canon. And that was not something that we had the privilege of talking about when I was in college. But I just had no, I, I'm sorry, I could not care less about Beowulf, about like all these other books that we were reading that were considered like, you know, the, um, the really like, great works of our time. So, um, I ended up actually thinking, okay, like I have, a lot of intersectional interests. What's a major, a liberal arts major that can tackle that? So finally ended up on political science, which I ended up loving. I had a concentration in political theory. So I really enjoyed like a lot of political philosophy. So reading like Aristotle, uh, Rousseau, um, Foucault, um, Nietzsche, and like a bunch of, a bunch of these not only Western European um, people. But um, you know, I, what I loved about the political science major was, was the intersection of like so many different things, like history, sociology, psychology, philosophy, like politics, um, and really thinking about like systems and how, and what are the systems that we need in place and how do those systems inform how people act? Because what I've always found interesting is that we think that we as people are autonomous and we can make our own decisions and like just because we have consciousness means that we're in control, but like, no, actually, you know, like we're, all shaped by you know the system that we're a part of and you know the moment you change like one a couple levers your behavior will shift and that was like the really fascinating aspect of political science like a lot of these political thought experiments um that i would read about i was like whoa you know like people whether or not people think they're good or bad you just change a couple of components and you could get some really surprising behavior from from them like i know in philosophy there's this one um, dilemma that they talk a lot about, but like, let's say there's a train running down um, these, these tracks and it's a runaway train and you can either save, like, I, I'm forgetting actually, you can save like the young kid or like save like something else. And then like this really hard dilemma. And I just always think about like, because of that, um, because of that, like that was what I studied and that's why I spent a lot of time thinking about it undergrad in different ways. Just made me, I think, a lot more compassionate about how hard it is to make like right or good choices as humans. Um, so, and then, yeah, as part of that journey, I started thinking, well, how do I explain to my parents, to my friends, but, but even more, how do I explain to myself, like, or justify a political science major? So I became very attached to the fantasy of being a lawyer because I'm not going to be a lawyer, no, I'm not going to be a doctor, not going to be an engineer. It just felt like the, the next best thing. And I, I also want to caveat here, my parents 
were never the type to pressure me to become anything. And I feel very lucky because I did have friends who experienced horror stories, but they've always been pretty hands off in terms of, you know, like what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, even now, they don't think they really know what I'm doing, but they're like, you're fine. So great. Um, so I didn't have their pressure, but I think what I did have was, you know, I almost like I overcompensated not because I didn't have their pressure. What I did have was a very strong pressure on myself because I was attached to this idealized fantasy of what it meant to be successful. And I, I myself was bought into that narrative that like only doctors, engineers, lawyers, you know, were people, were quote unquote successful people. And also growing up, not having a lot of you know, role models or mentors outside of my family or, or anything to look up to, certainly not in the media. There's a lot of narrative scarcity. And I actually get that word from Viet Thanh when the author, narrative scarcity. So when there's narrative scarcity, I was like, okay, what can I cling to? This thing that I've heard, which is doctors, lawyers, engineers are successful. So I sold myself on the idea that I should be a lawyer and um, it ended up not working out, obviously, <laughs> given what I do now today. But I think um, the reason why I think that, I think college, quite frankly, is kind of bullshit. It's four years for you to figure out how to be an adult, four years for you to figure out how to critically think, you know, to see how you can make decisions for yourself. And I think like for the, all of that, my biggest regret is that I didn't allow myself to experience more because I was so focused on like, what is my GPA? How do I stack my resume full of what essentially is bullshit stuff? None of it actually ever mattered. Spent a lot of time studying so much so that at my school library, um, Powell Library, they had this thing called Night Powell where like the library was up 24 seven. I was actually on first name basis with a security guard because I worked 20 hours a week at a law firm while I was an undergrad. And there was also a period where I took a full course load plus additional online classes because I wanted to stack my LSAC GPA because for law school, any classes you take before you get your bachelor's degree could be accounted towards your GPA for law school. And they say law school, they only care about your LSAT score and your LSAT GPA. So I um, had a very unhealthy lifestyle and like take classes a day, work in the afternoon to evening at this law firm, eat in the dorms, and then go into the library and study until like the sun came up and then pass out and go to classes. Yeah, I, I find that um, I'm glad that you said that the degree doesn't matter because it sincerely doesn't. I think what matters most is are you taking classes that you're excited about? Are you interacting with professors that make you feel seen and that are that are putting challenging problems and questions in front of you? Are you engaging in the discussion um, in your discussion sessions? I think that stuff is so much more important than your grades. And I think it's an unfortunate circumstance that we do live in a society that places too much emphasis on. These random numbers. No one asked you for your GPA or SAT score after college. Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think it's just it doesn't matter what you know what you study in and where you work doesn't obviously tell your entire story. It's what you do with that experience. We all grew as adults, right, in our most formidable years, like the good and the bad, and even all those nights doing stupid stuff with our friends. You learn something. Um, mm -hmm. The way that you you and I crossed paths was through our amazing mutual friends, Grace Troy and, and Tammy Cho and Joanne Park. I found out through social media that they were getting involved in this thing called the Cosmos. And I said, what the heck is that? And uh, we, I, I just found it to be an amazing process and thing that they were volunteering for and getting involved in. So share with us what sparked the idea and what changed it from an idea to actually doing something about it? I'm going to try to 
tell the most condensed version of this because the story has so many different nuances. But I think what I've shared early in this podcast is, you know, grew up feeling like I had these bifurcated identities. Um, also grew up, you know, not seeing a lot of Asian representation. So in turn, not really questioning what it personally meant for me to be Asian or Vietnamese. Like those identities weren't my primary identities, quite frankly, back then. It was like student, then maybe law school student, maybe lawyer, or like, or, or, you know, friend, daughter. Like those identities were more important to me than being Asian or Vietnamese. You know, identities, they shift and they're fluid, right? We all, we hold so many at any given time. So when I graduated college, I was in, you know, this very strange place where I think I had all this energy pent up of like, after college, I'm going to catapult to like the next big thing. And that it was going to be like, just as exciting and clear as it was to go from high school to college. But it wasn't because the real world, quite frankly, is very ambiguous. And it's brutal when, when you're floating and you don't really know where you want to go. So when I graduated college with the poli-sci degree, I told myself, okay, like I'm going to study for the LSAT, give myself a year to work full time, and then I'm going to trickle into law school the following fall. Along the way, I worked in a very toxic corporate environment, for example. So I, I took a job as a corporate legal assistant at a private equity firm in Beverly Hills. And that was the first time I experienced like misogyny and harassment at work and um, verbal abuse. And it was completely terrifying because I was 22 years old and had never experienced that before. I also didn't feel like I had the power or confidence to speak up about it. So I was going through this really crappy work situation where I was unhappy. I was also severely underpaid. And I'm very, I'm very vocal about this because I wish I had someone in my life in my corner that I had told and that they could have been like, what the hell are you doing? But I took a job that paid me under 40K as a college grad and I was living paycheck to paycheck and struggling. But what sold me was that like this private equity firm has this beautiful brand name. And I thought, oh, that brand name was more important. Anyway, so as I was going through this and studying for the LSAT and preparing for Lots of applications. I had this one light bulb moment where I realized, you know, I just went through the agony of three months of LSAT boot camp, took the LSAT, didn't necessarily get the score I wanted, but it wasn't like terrible. And as I was thinking about what am I going to write for my personal statement, I realized, wow, I am not excited about any of this. And therefore, if I'm not excited about like the work to get into law school, what makes you think I would be excited to be there? Nonetheless, to, to be a lawyer, you know, and I, what I realized at that point was, I started to identify with this fantasy so much because it gave me comfort because it's easier than the discomfort of just being upfront about the fact that I don't know what I want to do. And so I realized, like, I don't want to pay $100,000 for something that I don't really know if I want to do. So I pulled the plug, um, and I remember telling my parents, this was October of 2014, like, I'm not going to be going to law school after all. And so this was a really interesting time because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I needed to leave my current job. And so I had a friend who actually worked in consulting at this company. I was based out here in New York. And I saw that they were recruiting from UCLA. So I was like, well, they do say, if you don't know what you're doing, go into consulting. And, you know, it didn't seem bad on the outside. It's like, oh, you get to travel. You get to be on different projects. You get to work with different clients. And I was like, great. For someone who doesn't know what the hell they want to do, like, experience, right? Like, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to figure it out. And so I remember I'd never done a case interview before, which is like the specific type of interview that they do for consulting. So I remember I didn't sleep for, like, three days before my interview, just prepping, cramming, uh, running through practice interviews with my friends. 
somehow made it through the first round, made it through the final round, got an offer, and they were offering to pay to relocate me from LA to New York. And I was like, this is your moment. Like, you've always wanted to go to New York. And what better way to go than for someone else to pay for it, right? Uh, it's so costly. So it happened in such a whirlwind where, like, even now I'm like, wow, I really did not take the time to process it because I think it just hurt too much to acknowledge that everything I did for, like, my three years of undergrad and even a year after undergrad that was supposed to lead to law school, in a way it felt like it went to shit. Like, there was, like I had no nothing left. And so as, as opposed to like processing that, I was like, let me just catap- keep catapulting forward, forward, careening forward at 100 miles per hour so I don't have to feel that pain. And so I ended up getting a job offer around Thanksgiving, November 2014. This timeline is super condensed. I was living in a month-to-month uh, apartment in West Hollywood at the time. So I put in my notice, quit my job, gave myself two weeks to like mess around and like pack and ship my belongings across country, sold my car. And then on January 1st, after partying with my friends on New Year's Eve and my like final goodbye in LA, got on a plane, moved to New York January 2nd, 2015. And this all happened in the span of like three months, which is crazy. Like I just uprooted, sold my car, uprooted my life, left. When I got to New York, it was hard. New city, new industry. I also moved to New York at a time where you know, I feel like people move into in and out of New York in waves. Like you'll see a big wave of like all your friends coming and you'll see, and then it'll come be back on a downturn where like people leave. And then they'll go back up again. So I came at a time where most of my friends ended up either staying in LA or at SF. And I was kind of the first one to be like, going cross country, see you later. And um, so I had a couple of like loose acquaintances, like maybe like five or 10 loose acquaintances from like college or past life or friend of a friend. So I had like a little bit of like a starting point, but I very much felt alone because it wasn't like, they weren't my people. It wasn't like some of my friends who moved here now. And I'm like, oh, I love you. Like we're, like we're going to make sure that you never feel alone. Like I didn't have that. In a way, I think that that was really important for my journey because a key part of why I wanted to leave California was I had this realization, you know, right, right around the time I graduated college where, you know, so there's a big bubble in California. There's a tendency for the Asian people in California to believe that their experience is everyone else's experience. And what, what is nice about California is like, yes, it's relatively easy to live in. You don't have to deal with winter, but also... Being Asian is such a fundamental part of like California history. Like you're just like we like we own the San Diego Valley, you know, like we're on campus at UCLA, like yes, the University of South Asians living among Asians, it was just never a question. And I had this terrifying moment after graduation when I realized, oh shit, I can literally see my trajectory, I can see my life in ten years. And that scares me. The fact that I could see it, like the predictability. And that predictability was a function of like I've never left Southern California. And I had also seen how some of my other friends or family members who never left, what their worldview was. And I wanted a worldview that was different. I wanted to be in a place where I was uncomfortable, where I had to experience more. Um, and I just didn't quite feel ready to be able to be like, yes, I want the predictable life. I want to have like a family and the house with the lawn and, you know, in suburbia. It's just, I was like, what else is there? So that's why I left. And when I got to New York, it was quite a, the culture shock in multiple ways. Um, obviously, the weather, the fact that it was actual metropolitan city, it made me realize, oh, that's why people say LA is not a city. Um, very different. I, I, I missed my car. I had to like, figure out how to use the subway. But even beyond that, I realized, like, oh, the demographic makeup of Asians here is very different. Like, even from a historical perspective, like, you don't have as many Southeast Asians out here. Furthermore, I think I really came into my Vietnamese identity by moving to New York. Because it's the first time where 
being Vietnamese was like somewhat of a minority. And it's almost like being in this, that being in that position calcified what was important to me. And so I came into my Asian American identity and my Vietnamese identity together through the journey of like wanting to leave LA and then trying to figure out who I was here in New York. Um, and so the move, that move was a forced, forcing mechanism of multiple things in my life. Um, so when I got to New York, I, you know, spent the first couple of years really trying to find my community and really, I think, activating my Asian American activism and wanting to understand more deeply what is the history that we have contributed to in this country and, you know, what is everything that I didn't learn in K through 12? What, what has been hidden from us, you know, through the educational system? And furthermore, how is our history interrelated to that of many other POC communities? And what does it mean for me to be proud of who I am? Again, going back to what you said earlier, like history and personal histories are the same, but if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going, and you're also prone to repeat the same mistake. So, I mean, I started the Cosmos because I met my co-founder, Karen, at a time where there's just a lot of political turmoil, general discontent, you know, Trump had been elected, uh, Harvey Weinstein allegations were coming up, Women's March was in preparation, it was going to happen the following January, and she and I had very different Asian experiences. She grew up in South Carolina, she's an Asian from the South who was living in the Bay Area, working in tech, so two very extreme different like Asian experiences, and I was like a Southern California Asian who left that to go to New York. So we both like went cross-country, running away from some things and running towards some others. In the first conversation that we had, we realized that, you know, we had a lot of similar challenges that we wanted to talk about, but we both felt like there was no space to unpack the Asian woman identity. You know, we wanted a space to be able to talk honestly about the pain and loneliness that you can feel as the child of Asian parents when you have such a huge cultural gap, when you realize that there's going to be pretty significant portion of your life that your parents probably don't understand. And that's just, that's just your experience, right? It's neither good or bad. Um, also beyond that, like how do we talk about mental health? How do we talk about like the perceived lack of like political participation of the Asian diaspora? How do we talk about the fact that, you know, we felt at the time that there's so many important conversations that Asians were having in private, but for some reason seemed uncomfortable or not having, not willing to have it in public or maybe not even not willing, just no one had forced it into the public eye yet. So that was what galvanized us together in Tammy and Grace and Jojo actually were at the very first Cosmos retreat. So Cosmos started because we wrote a blog post on Medium that had a Google form at the bottom that basically said, if the question of what does it look like for Asian women to flourish and thrive resonates with you, if it feels radical, if you've never freaking thought about it and you're sitting there now thinking, holy shit, like I could thrive, I could do more than struggle, then fill out the Google form. And you know, the blog post is still up on Medium. And when we sent it out to our Facebook friends, I think I personally expected like 10 people will sign up and maybe I'll get out on Google Hangout. We ended up getting 200 signups and that was crazy to us because we had no plans for this other than let's just see who else cares. So it was very astonishing. Um, we were not going to hop on the phone with 200 people. So we were like, let's think about the fastest way to do this. Ah, let's book a house and sell it out and see if we can get people all together for a weekend in one room and then just unpack all the things. 
So that's what we ended up doing. We booked a house in Seattle, which was January of 2018 in Seattle. And we chose Seattle because one, I was on a consulting project, so I was going there once a month. And two, conveniently, uh, Alaska Airlines was having all these promos. So to fly from LASF, New York, the three major Asian cities, it was really affordable. And so booked this Airbnb for 22 people, sold out 20 spots in this house to literal strangers on the internet. And I think some of them might have known me and Karen um, a little bit. Like Christy and Kat of Supplanted, for example, came. They knew of us a little bit. Other people knew of us tangentially. Other people straight up didn't know us at all. Jojo Park knew, did not know either of us. And she was like, why not? I'm just going to go and see what happens. This is, we didn't even have a website at the time. There was no Cosmos. This is like, Kath and Karen have an Instagram and LinkedIn and they're doing this thing, Venmo your house, your security deposit and then book a flight. So that weekend changed everything. We, my favorite anecdote to describe how powerful that space that we convened was is, you know, when you book these like big houses on VRBO at Airbnb, usually they have like a pantry that's stocked full of extra stuff. By Sunday, we had cried out of all the toilet paper and tissue paper in the house. So people were using their bath towels to wipe their faces. And the tears started with the very first activity we put together Friday night. And it just progressed throughout the whole weekend. And the tears were tears of like finally breaking down the dam, of finally being seen, uh, of being able to talk about, you know, very hard topics like how we feel about our family or alienation or discrimination we've experienced or feelings of just like deep, I, I think, insecurity about our identity because we, we still do not yet live in a world where I think you know, people of color do have spaces that center us and celebrate us. So it was, it, it was like an emotional breaking down of the dam and also the beginning of what would be the cosmos. That led to, after that weekend, Karen and I were like, well, we, I guess we should buy a Squarespace and make a website because that's how you legitimize something, right? And, you know, from day one, the cosmos has always been so much bigger than us in two ways. Like one, it's a, it's a, it started off as a community, so it literally was bigger than just us two. But two, I always felt like we were playing catch up to like the demand. And so I think that's why, uh, I mean, it's the culture that we created, the like the community principles that Karen and I put together for that first retreat continue to be the principles that are for how we run the, com- the company, for how we show up for each other. Uh, and I think that the way that we're doing things just has resonated with people so much. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, now we are at a point where there's a lot of like Asian stuff coming out. But when we started, like, I still had people in the beginning asking me, why are you doing this? Why are you organizing Asian women? Then a lot of those people who questioned me were Asian people too. And so I think it's been interesting to ride the zeitgeist, um, like, and having come in like right before the crazy rich Asians wave and then to ride through it and to even be here now today where, you know, as you know, we have now pivoted into being a health and wellness company. Yeah, it's been a very long winded journey, but. That's my way of condensing it. I, I hope that a lot of the people that are listening are either familiar with the work that you've done. You know, we, we often talk about, particularly in the community, about small actions by a small group of people really making a positive and a great impact. And you, you've done it and you continue to do it. And I know you will do more. I, I think you've struck a chord with me and a lot of other people where creating spaces that we didn't even know we needed. I mean, even before we even knew we needed that they could exist, right? I, I think there's man or woman doesn't matter. I think it's just make good on the sacrifice of your parents. And that was very narrowly defined as academic and professional success because our parents didn't really have the luxury to share or explore or even admit some of the feelings that they went through because survival was 
literally the only thing that they had to worry about. We, the next generation, are burdened with this amazing gift of opportunity, but also at the same exact time, we, we weren't allowed to talk about anything. We weren't asked to talk about anything. There are movements happening because of the work that you've done. I know you have you know chapters across the country and I see online every day the good work that you're doing and, and what's transformed into. You are a change maker. I think you have positively impacted and inspired so much more than I think you even probably care to admit today. And then I'll share with the audience too. You know, when I when I started the idea of this podcast, I looked at obviously the people that I knew and I wanted to gather people for lack of a better term, like gave a crap about us and did something about it, right? So you obviously instantly came to mind as, as somebody who's picked on a topic and a community that isn't necessarily talked about. When we talk about gender diversity, Asian women really don't get talked about. And obviously when we talk about racial diversity, it's like, oh yeah, and those other, you know, model minority people that really don't need any help because <laughs> they all go to Harvard and they all have, you know, tech job, whatever it is, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think at the intersection of that, you know, it's sort of the most overlooked group. So it's been so amazing to hear the story. And I know that this is just chapter one. And I, I don't think people fully realize, and, and this is sort of the dilemma that a lot of uh, side hustle turned into full-time hustle people face on the internet is this, how do I both portray a air of, I know what I'm doing. Please come read my blog, follow my Instagram, whatever we have our <laughs> shit together. But at the same time, holy crap, there's so many things and it's even in the space that you're in, which is to talk about mental health openly and to talk about and address some of the things that we go through. You know, I, I think it's it's kudos to you for being so open about your journey and, and sharing a lot, you know, happy to support in the journey and however way we can. And I encourage, you know, if you're listening to this episode, um, I, I think there's so much to learn from Cassandra's journey. If you have felt frustrated because people who look like you don't appear on the things that you want to do that spaces actually do exist. And like you said, it's sort of a blessing and a curse, but the demand for Asian American stuff, whatever it is, the Oscars were two days ago and now everybody wants to be Korean and make a movie. Right? So, so, you know, in addition to all the great things that have been happening already, it's just the, the amount of pr- healthy pride and my voice matters because people that look like me are speaking my language on, on the world's greatest stages. These spaces and these communities are such in high demand. If you're thinking about creating one, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, just do it because somebody cares. Somebody will, somebody's life will be changed because of the thing that you want to do. I, I am so grateful that I don't know if it's age or generation or just the times are different, but I think what would have been laughed at by our cool friends 10 years ago, they'd be the first to sign up today. And Mm -hmm. so, especially if you're in high school or college and you're worried about what your parents might think, you're worried about what your, you know, friends might think, um, even if it is a side gig, even if it is a writing a song or writing a blog or, you know, starting an Instagram account where you want to bring people together, just do it because it will actually also open so many doors to the amazing generations of people that have come before you and that will come after you to help connect with them. Yeah, I have one more thing to what you're saying. First of all, I I agree, but I think it's, I think another thing that is always important to share is, well, one, I want to say no one knows what the hell they're doing. 
that's how you know you're working with good people, like people who are really willing to admit to you like how much they don't know. I actually am very wary of people who tell me that they know everything and got it all figured out. Because so I'm like, now you're just lying to yourself. But the people who are being, who are willing to be humble and say that like I don't know necessarily what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing today. I know what I know what my step my next step is, and I'm letting myself figure the rest out. And so I find that oftentimes when people are sitting on like a passion project, an idea, uh, I don't know, an art project, a dream. They, they hold themselves back because they think that like they compare themselves to the person that's like, I'm the expert. I know everything. And I just want to say that's a complete farce. You know, most people, we only, we only ever have this very moment. There's no tomorrow. Tomorrow's not a guarantee. And on top of that, you know, the world is rapidly changing. We're rapidly changing all the time in ways that we're not even seeing. And so, you know, it's just like, what are you going to do today that gets you incrementally closer to the world that you want to live in? And, and I think the second part I want to tag on to what you said is, Yes, I think it's important to do stuff because it will it might impact someone else. But I think moreover, it's important to do stuff for you. Like the the act of creation, whether or not it ever sees the if it, if it ever lives on social media, whether or not it ever has a website, or whether you just make something just for you. Like I think first and foremost, the really important thing about creating is that like it has to be for you, or you'll never be happy because you're always going to be chasing some external validation or someone's seal of approval. But you need to have your own seal of approval for yourself first. And so I think why the, the most successful things, in my opinion, are things that first and foremost are authentic to that person who created it. And and they are aligned with, um, you know, the type of world that they want to create. And world could be small or large, micro or macro. It has to be for you first, because at the end of the day, you know, things will happen. Customers have customers go go where they come. But as long as it's for you, like you'll always have like that internal fire that nothing can take away. And also it makes your quote unquote success of whatever you're building. That's always just secondary to the fact that you did it because it's tr your truth. And I think about this podcast that you have by Carrie, you're like, yeah, I don't know where it's going, but for now it's true to me and it allows me to, to contribute to the world that I want to create. And I think in the beginning, that's what you need to cultivate and actually protect the most because the moment that you start selling out or compromising because of I don't know, others outside of you, you know, it no longer becomes whatever you created is no longer authentic to you. And I think that's really precious because we all have like a unique perspective to share. And I think that's really important, like whatever it is that it's first and foremost for you. Thank you for sharing that. I shared this with you before we jumped on the interview and, and shared with many uh, supporters and, and friends of, of this project is the initial idea was just sort of 36 years in the making, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what What would I wish have people, and re, re, this is regardless of whether I would have paid attention because when you're younger, you don't. But I, I think how many things could I have done differently or just been inspired to do so if I was given the permission to? That there was so much opportunity and so much examples and demonstration of what was possible for people who look like me that I wouldn't have even needed to ask permission or think about that. And, you know, the idea really came to fruition and almost became a necessity when I became a father where it became, all right, if we don't do anything, if I don't do anything to continue to crystallize and, and you know, memorialize all of our stories as they're happening, my kids 30 years later might still have the same identity based, who are we and, you know, how do we balance that? So. The whole thing is a letter to me, is a letter to you, a letter to Jacob and Charlotte and, and to all of you guys listening. And so on, on that note, Cassandra, name of the show is The Years Americans. It's a letter to us, from us. So I will start the letter and uh, help us 
close out the show. Dear Asian Americans. You are so worthy of the time, energy, and effort to get to know your deepest self. And you are so worthy of digging into your history, of looking into the mirror and loving on the features, the nuances, the complexities of what makes you you. And furthermore, you must do that self-work with responsibility because your existence on this earth matters. And someone out there is looking at you and the way that you treat yourself. And that is a message for how they might see themselves. So, yeah, you're worthy of love. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, Cassandra, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. I, sharing family stories, especially in a in such a public way, is something that is not easy to do. I, I am so, so happy that you've decided to quit consulting, number one. <laughs> I didn't decide to quit. I got laid off, but that's the story. Well, you know, <laughs> as, as, a, as a former recovering consultant myself, I, I do resonate with a lot of the frustrations of this is not what I was meant to do on this earth. And, you know, primarily and foremost for taking that bold leap of faith and, you know, whether it was a conversation with Karen or, you know, booking that Airbnb on a whim, on a, on a promise and, and a dream and hope that you have and continue to inspire hope in a lot of Asian American women. A lot of Asian American men out there who see what you guys are doing and probably are, are hoping and working ways that we too can create a positive and, and uplifting places for us to talk about the things that matter to us. And really something that you, we started the conversation today with family history and what you know about your family and your parents' history and you doing this as a project now will definitely make it easier for you to tell your kids and your grandkids one day of the difference that you've made in, in so many people's lives. So again, Cassandra, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and, and Karen and, and in the world of Cosmos. Love the name. It's an infinite, endless empire mm -hmm. that we can expand into. So again, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Terry. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cassandra as much as I did having it with her. I, I learned so much about a very different type of Asian American experience that I didn't grow up with. And it makes me so happy to be able to share her story, her ongoing story, and I hope you learned something as well. Special thanks to Justin Park and Peter Hong of Studio 5A for the intro music. It's TLC by Justin Park. Again, to Jason Liu for the creation of our Dear Asian American logo, and to Allison Chang, who is our editor. Come back tomorrow, where we'll meet Rajiv Satyal, a.k.a. the Funny Indian. Check us out on the web at DearAsianAmericans.com, on Instagram at DearAsianAmericans, or if you want to come on the show, email me at hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. <laughs>